This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Werewolf Well, it's finally Halloween. And with that, we bring to a close our series of terrible fantasy beasts whose names start with W. And we end with the first W of them all. The first one we chose months ago when it came up during one of our monthly live chats. Incidentally, did you know that if you support this show on Patreon at the $5 level or better, you get to join us, the creators of the show, on our Discord server and participate in a live chat and Q&A session every month? It's true. And it's how we ended up settling on the werewolf as the theme for our Halloween episode. And that, of course, started the whole W thing. Now, the werewolf is a very complicated creature. It's very hard to pin down, very hard to define. And that's because it takes a lot of forms. And we don't mean that it can change shape, though it absolutely can. A werewolf is, at its most basic, a human who can change shape and become a wolf. Or who involuntarily changes shape between human and wolf. Or a human who is changed into a wolf permanently. Or a humanoid wolf creature, a hybrid of human and wolf. Their shape-shifting powers are the result of powerful shamanic magic. Or a warrior spirit. Or a curse, or a magical belt, or a disease, or just because they are born that way. Mythologically, they have their origins in ancient Greece. Or perhaps Phoenicia. Or maybe in South America. Or, or North America. Or Central Europe. Or Central Asia. And in Dungeons and Dragons, werewolves are just one of a broad classification of human-animal shapeshifters known as lycanthropes. Their cousins include the weir-rat, weir-bear, weir-tiger, and weir-whatever-other-thing the GM wants to create. And that's not even addressing wolf-weirs and jackal-weirs, which are distinct from werewolves and weir-jackals because wolf-weirs are wolves that turn into people, not people who turn into wolves. Got that? So there's a lot to unpack with werewolves. Honestly, they are almost as complicated as dragons, and we're going to do our best to cover the most interesting bits of werewolf mythology we can find. The first thing we have to address is the name. As anyone who has spent any time being smug at Sonic the Hedgehog fans knows, weir is a Germanic word which means man. And that's why the strange hybrid of humanoid wolf and humanoid hedgehog that Sonic turns into in the 2008 platformer game Sonic Unleashed should not be called a weirhog. Weirhog means man-pig. Duh. But those same smarmy pedants have absolutely no problem calling the general class of all human-animal shapeshifters lycanthropes, even though it's equally as dumb. See. Lycanthrope is a Greek word, and it means werewolf. Lycos is the Greek word for wolf, and anthropos is the Greek word for human. So calling a weir-rat a lycanthrope is just as silly as calling Sonic a weir-hog. We digress. It's actually appropriate to start with the Greek when talking about the mythological origins of the werewolf, because Greek mythology is generally accepted as the starting point for the myths of the European werewolf. 
And that story begins with a king of Arcadia named Lycaon. And even this story takes a couple of different shapes. One version ends with the Greek equivalent of the Noah's Ark story. Another ends with a werewolf. The Noah's Ark version of the story is actually very interesting. What you have to understand is that according to Greek writers like Hesiod, there were actually five ages of man. And also that Zeus, the king of the gods, was a big jerk. The first age was known as the Golden Age, and it was an awesome time during which everything was great and the world was ruled by the titan Cronus. But that age ended when Zeus, one of Cronus's many kids, banded together with his siblings to overthrow Cronus and rule the world. Thus began the Silver Age, which wasn't nearly as nice as the Golden Age. And when people noticed that Zeus's rule wasn't as great as Cronus's and started to question the king of the gods, Zeus killed everyone and sent them all to the underworld. Thereafter, Zeus got bored and created new people, strong, aggressive people. And they had weapons and armor of bronze. So it was called the Bronze Age. But those people got violent and aggressive and liked Ares better than Zeus. And they started to question Zeus again. So Zeus flooded the whole world to kill everyone and started a new age. This was called the Age of Heroes, and it included such awesomeness as the Trojan War and most of Greek mythology. And when that age just sort of sputtered out, Zeus started up the Iron Age. And technically, we're still in that one. Until Zeus gets bored or mad and kills us all again. What does any of this have to do with werewolves? Well, during the Bronze Age, there was a king named Lycaon who ruled the nation of Arcadia. And he really didn't think much of Zeus, except he also kind of did. See, Lycaon did start a big cult to Zeus and built a lot of temples and even helped get the precursor to the Panhellenic Games started that kicked off the Olympic tradition. But in this version of the story, Lycaon didn't like Zeus very much. Specifically, he doubted that Zeus was all-knowing. So one day he decided to test Zeus's all-knowingness by offering the god a meal that contained a secret ingredient, the roasted flesh of Lycaon's own son, Nyctimus. Which totally makes sense and is not at all unreasonable or unfair to Nyctimus. It turns out that Zeus was pretty smart, and he did see through the trick. And this is where the two different endings happen. In one ending, this was the final straw for Zeus, and that's why he decided to flood the world and start again with the Age of Heroes. In another version, Zeus didn't take it out on the entire world. Instead, he punished Lycaon by turning him into a wolf. And also he brought Nyctimus back to life, which is very nice and not at all likely to result in mental scarring for Nyctimus. And thus, Lycaon became the first lycanthrope. Now this whole wolf story, which was told in Ovid's Metamorphosis, actually helps explain a strange ritual that Plato described in his book Republic. He described an annual ceremony held in Lycia in honor of Zeus which involved grisly human sacrifice and people turning into wolves and back again. However, some scholars have suggested that lycanthropic cults actually predate the Greeks by a few centuries. In his 1928 book The Werewolf, historian Montague Summers describes a Phoenician cult that, according to legend, had the power to turn into wolves and their origins might go as far back as 1200 BCE. 
Now, the idea of people voluntarily, magically assuming the form of a wolf is not generally what we think of when we talk about werewolves. We tend to think about lycanthropy as an affliction or a curse. And certainly that's how the Greeks saw it. But believe it or not, that is actually a much more modern take on lycanthropy. In point of fact, while we think of the werewolf as a medieval European idea, it wasn't as widespread across Europe as some would have you believe. In fact, werewolf superstitions were very rare during the Middle Ages. They existed in Central Europe before the medieval period, and there was a huge resurgence in werewolf superstition starting in the 1500s and carrying on through the 1700s. But they weren't quite what you might think. First of all, before the Middle Ages, werewolf legends in Europe were tied directly to Germanic paganism. During this period of time, the embodiment of the wolf spirit was seen as part of a warrior initiation rite. Wolves, common in Central Europe, were revered for their cunning, loyalty, and bravery. Germanic art from the period shows warriors wearing wolf pelts, kneeling on all fours, and howling. And of course, legends spoke of great warriors who could actually assume the form of a wolf. Other Germanic and Scandinavian legends describe magical objects such as belts or cloaks that allowed people to assume the form of a wolf voluntarily. One famous Norse story known as the Volsunga Saga tells the tale of a father and son, Sigmund and Sinfjotli, who discovered two magical wolf pelts that would allow them to assume the form of a wolf for ten days at a time. Ultimately, though, the pair discovers that being a wolf is nothing to howl home about and they ultimately burn the pelts after they nearly kill each other in a fight. It is these Germanic legends that planted the seed for the loop guru. That's a French name that basically means wolfman. And at this point, that shouldn't be surprising. According to legend, a loop guru is a person who can assume the form of a wolf, but retains the mind of a person. Generally, a magical trinket or black magic is involved. And in the 1500s, the legend of the loop guru mixed with a bit of cultural hysteria and turned into a witch hunt. Or rather, the witch hunt also included a wolf hunt. What you have to understand is that from the mid-1500s through the mid-1600s, Europe was kind of a mess. Politically, Europe was divided into three bickering monarchies, Spain, France, and England who were all trying to secure their borders and increase their holdings. The Holy Roman Empire in Central Europe had fractured into a bunch of semi-sovereign Central European states loosely controlled. Feudalism had collapsed, giving way to aristocratic monarchies in control of mercenary armies. Religiously, the Protestant Reformation fractured Catholicism and divided a Europe that had been previously united by a common religion into two warring factions. Socioeconomically, class divisions were becoming increasingly broad, and poverty was running rampant among the common people. Constant warfare and many years of poor weather and bad harvests led to widespread famine, and with the increasing urbanization of Europe, new diseases were spreading like wildfire among a population that was living closer to each other than ever before. The great advances of the Renaissance were passing the common folk by, and they were becoming increasingly steeped in religion and superstition in their desperation. And it was that turmoil that gave rise to the famous European witch hunts. During the medieval period, people believed in magic and witchcraft, of course, 
but they generally viewed it as harmless, even helpful. It was a callback to old pagan traditions, nothing more, and the Catholic Church basically washed their hands of it. In the 8th century, St. Boniface said there were no witches, that was just silly, and the Church shouldn't concern itself with such things. Magic was dismissed as hallucination. But suddenly, troubled people looking for scapegoats and a sense of control over their lives started believing in witches. And not helpful witches. Witches who did terrible evil, who cursed the land and brought evil on their fellow men and women. Witches who worshipped the devil. And then the church did something really dumb. They decreed that witches did, in fact, exist and that they were an affront to God. But this isn't about witches and warlocks and witch hunts. Though now that we think about it, we could have fit witches into this month. They do start with W. And we could have saved ourselves digging through five editions worth of monster manuals before we turned up that Wemmick thing. But we digress. See, witches weren't the only things being hunted in the 16th century witch history. There was also an epidemic of werewolves. And these were the loop guru sorts of werewolves. They were satanic magicians who could turn into wolves to do evil things. And there were a huge number of folks burned or executed as werewolves, usually based on little or no evidence at all. As with the witch hunts. And many of these cases probably had some ugly ulterior motives. Take, for example, the case of the werewolf of Bedburg. In 1589, in Bedburg, in the Habsburg States, there was a farmer named Peter Stumpf. Supposedly, Bedburg was being plagued by a horrible wolf-like monster. It had devoured 14 children and two pregnant women. And according to witnesses, the beast was missing one of its paws. By strange coincidence, Stumpf was missing a hand. Stumpf was also a popular Protestant, and Bedberg had recently fallen under the control of Catholic mercenaries. But that definitely had nothing to do with the fact that Stumpf was accused of being a werewolf, dragged to the castle, and tortured until he confessed to being a werewolf, and also to raping his daughter impregnating her, and then eating the child's brains. Stumpf was sentenced to die by having his skin flayed off, having all of his bones individually and ritually broken, and then being burned in a pit. And his daughter was burned with him for good measure. So, where does the idea of the werewolf curse come from? The idea of a werewolf as an innocent victim of a curse. Someone who is forced by circumstances beyond their control to turn into a wolf and fly into a murderous rage until the curse subsides. Well, that actually comes from a collision between two different cultures in the 1600s and 1700s. When French settlers came to North America, which at that time had a massive wolf population, they also brought their superstitions about the loop garou. And then they encountered Native Americans who had their own legends. 
Legends like a certain corrupting spirit whose name starts with W and drives people into a bestial fury and causes them to feed on their fellow humans. You know, one that rhymes with Schmendigo. If you still can't figure it out, go back to the first episode of this month and close the circle yourself. The collision of French and Native American legends about shapeshifters and corrupting spirits that turned people against each other gave rise to the modern interpretation of the werewolf. And while these remained a part of American folklore and consciousness for centuries, this interpretation of the werewolf wouldn't truly become lodged in the Western cultural consciousness until 1981. And that was thanks primarily to a man who, as a teenager, enjoyed creating fake dismembered limbs out of various household ingredients. Richard A. Baker, more popularly known as Rick Baker, had always been interested in art, makeup, and filmmaking. He'd been born in upstate New York to professional artist Ralph Baker. Inspired by television shows like The Night Stalker in his teens, he became interested in prosthetics, makeup, and practical film effects. He got his start in the film industry by working with visual effects master Dick Smith on the 1973 film The Exorcist. But his big break came when he worked on John Landis's 1981 film An American Werewolf in London. And this film, which you really must see, is the seminal work about the innocent victim who is unknowingly cursed with lycanthropy and gradually realizes he is responsible for the murders that keep happening around him. It also included the idea of lycanthropy being something that could be transmitted from werewolf to werewolf. Reportedly, Landis got the idea for the movie while working on another production in Yugoslavia and watching a local gypsy perform rituals during a burial to prevent the corpse from rising and killing others, which he mixed with other werewolf stories. And while an American werewolf in London was, coincidentally, one of three major werewolf films released in the same year, it became renowned because of Rick Baker's amazing makeup and special effects work. That same work would lead Baker to working on Michael Jackson's Weirdcat transformation in his Thriller video. Since his Academy Award for his work in American Werewolf in London, Rick Baker has been nominated for ten more Academy Awards and won seven times. In fact, he holds the record for the most Oscar nominations and wins of any professional in the makeup effects field. An American Werewolf in London was certainly not the first movie to feature a werewolf, but it was an extremely popular and successful film and has become a cult classic. And it touched off a minor pop culture werewolf mania in the mid-80s in the United States that ultimately gave us such works of art as Michael J. Fox's portrayal of a basketball-playing wolfman in Teen Wolf. And it codified many of the werewolf tropes we're familiar with today. Speaking of werewolf tropes, we'd be crazy if we talked for 3,000 words about werewolves and didn't address and debunk lunacy and the full moon effect. Among the most well-known of werewolf tropes, especially when discussing the curse of lycanthropy, is that the moon somehow controls the transformation between normal person and slavering wolf beast. And it's easy to understand the basic association. After all, Wolves are known to howl at the full moon. Except they don't. That's actually a myth. 
It's true that it is more common to hear wolves howling when there is a full moon, but that has nothing to do with the moon at all. Wolves actually howl to communicate with each other, and they have a number of different howls. They can tell other wolves that there are yummy deer here, or that they've caught a yummy deer and require assistance bringing it home, or to say that they have been injured by a yummy but suspiciously aggressive deer who turned out not to be quite as dead as they thought, and where were you, you jerks? And they howl upwards toward the sky to effectively throw their voices, increasing the range over which their howl can be heard. The reason it's more common to hear wolves howling during the full moon is that wolves are more active on clear, bright nights. When there is a full moon in the clear sky, that's about the brightest night you can get. But the association between lycanthropy and the full moon actually runs deeper than a mistaken belief that wolves howl at the full moon. It actually comes from a mistaken belief that the full moon causes violence, hysteria, and insanity. And this belief has been around for a long time. A long time. Ancient Greek and ancient Roman scholars attempted to explain poorly understood mental disorders like epilepsy and bipolar disorder as arising from the moon's influence. They believed that a full moon could induce fits of madness or violence in susceptible individuals. From the Roman moon goddess Luna, we derive the words lunacy and lunatic. Aristotle conjectured that the additional light from the full moon might disrupt a person's normal sleep and waking cycles and lead to crazed behavior. Pliny the Elder suggested that because the human brain was the moistest organ, that is, it contained the most water of all the organs in the body, because of the brain's moistness, it might be susceptible to the moon's influence just like the ocean tides. And this lunacy has persisted for a long time, a very long time indeed. Like, it still exists. Ask any nurse, doctor, or police officer, and they will say the ER visits and police calls are always more frequent on or around the full moon, and that many of the increased emergency and police calls involve agitated and unstable individuals. One recent survey found that four out of five nurses and two out of every three doctors believed in some sort of full moon effect. The belief is so persistent that numerous scientific studies have been conducted over the last four decades trying to find any evidence whatsoever. And it's just not there. As far back as 1985, one meta-analysis of 37 studies of the full moon effect found absolutely no discernible increase in police or emergency room activity related to the full moon, nor any increase in calls to crisis centers and suicide prevention hotlines, nor an increase in traffic accidents. The very small number of studies that found otherwise were easily debunked. For example, one study conducted in 1982 concluded that more traffic accidents occurred under the full moon during a certain period but completely neglected to note that by pure happenstance, during the period in question, most full moons occurred on weekend nights. And weekend nights always see an increase in traffic accidents. The 1985 report concluded with a desperate plea for people to stop sinking money into useless studies about the non-existent full moon effect. Naturally, the lunacy continued and study after study has been published. One three-year study was conducted in Canada about eight years ago and affirmed, again, that there was 
no connection between the full moon and any sort of psychological problem. However, the study did find an odd decrease of 32% in anxiety disorders and related incidents on nights during a waning quarter moon. The researchers still have no explanation for that. As to why the belief in the full moon persists, well, psychologists and researchers suggest that it is mainly down to confirmation bias. What that means is that you tend to notice evidence that confirms what you already think is true and tend to discount or overlook evidence to the contrary. So, a police officer who goes out on a full moon and has to deal with an agitated individual or domestic disturbance, a common enough police call, will see that as evidence of the full moon effect and totally discount the fact that he answered similar calls three other nights in the same week. Long story short, you shouldn't be too worried about the full moon. Anyone who is crazy during the full moon is most likely crazy all the rest of the time, too. And as for werewolves, it's a modern misconception that the full moon has any effect on them at all. Traditional werewolves can transform into wolves and murder you any time they want. Isn't that comforting? Sleep well. And happy Halloween. <laughs> this has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>